On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. That is an excellent song going along with our theme for this study in Philippians, All Things Through Christ. If you would take your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter number 1. We're looking at verses 9, 10, and 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. When tragedy strikes in our, our country, maybe on a widespread level, I know you have heard it as well as I have, inevitably politicians and celebrities and other people will say something like this, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Ever heard that? Somebody's bound to say that in some way or another, but what, what does that really mean? We've all been through hard times, right? Are someone's thoughts for you of any value in difficult times? Are the prayers of people that have no relationship with God of any value to you during a difficult time? I remember one Facebook comment that I saw. Somebody was going through a, a difficult time, and they said this on the comment. They said, I'm sending good vibes your way. Ooh, vibes, right? Well, what do you, what pray tell you're supposed to do with vibes when you get them, right? But a lot of times we don't really know what to say, do we? I think sometimes even in, in our Christian circles, the, the phrase, we're praying for you, has become a little bit more of a cliche than an actual statement. Maybe it's what we say when we don't really know what else to say, right? Kind of sounds more like a phrase from a Hallmark card or maybe the old TV show, Touched by an Angel. Remember that? We're praying for you. Do we actually pray like we should or is it just something that we say that we do? If you say you're praying for someone, you have to ask this question, when are you actually doing it? When is your set time to lift up requests to God? When is your set time in which you pray for that person for which you said you were praying? Or do you just need something to say when someone's struggling? For those who actually are praying, I think sometimes it, it feels like we don't really know what to say in that prayer. We're kind of at a loss for words, maybe. I hope that in Philippians 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, you're encouraged by this today because the Apostle Paul gives us an example of a spiritually rich prayer. A prayer that I think he, that he prayed for the Philippian church, and I think through it he can provide a, a stirring pattern for us in our prayer life as well of what our prayers for one another should look like. Let's read that in Philippians 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul says this, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Before we get into the specifics of Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, I kind of want to take a bird's eye view and look at this prayer that he offers here and learn some things for us. Number one, a pattern of prayer. Paul had a pattern of prayer. Now, in some places in Scripture, prayer is commanded for us. One of the most obvious and one of our favorite verses to memorize when we were a kid was 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? Pray without ceasing. I got it. I get my VBS points. Pray without ceasing. 
All right, prayer is commanded in that instance. Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. It even happens later in Philippians, if you look at chapter 4, verse 6. He says, be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So in some places, prayer is commanded, but here initially in Philippians 1, it's not a command. What it is, is that prayer is demonstrated as a pattern in Paul's life. He doesn't tell them, pray this, what I'm praying for you, but he says, this is what I'm praying for you as a pattern for you to do it as well. And for Paul, it's an active and a future endeavor. The the verb form of the Greek word here tells us that, that it's happening now and it's also going to happen in the future. It wasn't for Paul just to, oh yeah, one time I prayed for you. I got that off my list. But no, it's here something that he's done and it's something that he will do. In essence, he's saying, I pray this for you regularly and I will continue to pray this for you. For Paul, prayer was a pattern of his life was part of the fabric of who he was. And this shows up in other epistles as well. In our scripture reading, we read in Ephesians 1, did you notice that he was, he was saying a prayer? He was recording a prayer that he had prayed for the Ephesians, the church of, of Ephesus? And then in Colossians 1, it also happens. You can look that up, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12. It happens again in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says to the people that he's writing, he says, I'm praying this for you. It was a pattern in his life. The old English theologian Matthew Henry says this, Paul often let his friends know what it was he begged of God for them, that they might know what to beg for themselves and be directed in their own prayers. Isn't that good? Paul let his friends know what he begged of God for them so that they would have direction in their own prayers and they would know what to beg God for. In other words, he's demonstrating the need for the pattern of prayer in our lives. And so I ask you, and and I've been thinking about this all week in preparation for this, have you made prayer a pattern in your life? Is it a part of who you are and what you do as a Christian? I heard somebody say earlier this week that the best way to ensure that only two people show up to church is to call it a prayer meeting. When, when Bryson was little, we started the habit of, of praying with the boy, boys before bedtime. And I'm not setting myself up as the perfect example, because honestly, if you're parents and you have little kids, you know that that is a challenge. Some nights you don't feel like doing it. Some nights you don't want to do it. And some nights you forget to do it. We share blessings with the boys. We share prayer requests with them. And you know when we forget to do it, or sometimes before I've even gotten to that point, do you know who it is that reminds us to do it? Three-year-old Gideon. I'm not kidding. He'll say this. You pray, Daddy? You pray, Daddy? Yes. Sometimes he does it even before his nap because he's thinking, I'm going to bed, therefore we're supposed to pray. And even at three years old, he's seeing that pattern that prayer is something that we do together. We want to pass that on to our kids. Prayer is a pattern for us. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says there that the disciples came to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Well, if you look at the early part of that verse, it says that Jesus had just finished praying. So the disciples had witnessed him praying, or they knew that he had gone off to pray. And when he comes back, they said, we want to learn that. We want to learn to pray like you pray. Teach us to pray. 
They had seen the pattern in Jesus' life, and they wanted that for themselves. That's what we see here in Paul as well. We see that his pattern of prayer is a lesson that we can learn as well. To make it a pattern in our life. I pray this for you. I have been praying it for you. I will pray it for you. It's a pattern for him. Secondly, I want you to see this. It's a personal prayer. Not just a pattern of prayer, but a personal prayer. He says, I pray this. This I pray that your love, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. It was personal to Paul. He prayed personally for the Philippians. Why? Because he knew the Philippians. Remember, we've talked in the last couple of weeks, that trip in Acts 16, where he goes to Philippi and he meets them personally. He knows those people. And is it not true in your life like it is for me that you can't personally pray for people until you actually know the people? Paul's prayer here in, in verses 9, 10, 11 is not like our prayers sometimes. You ever been caught in those prayers that sound something like, well, bless all the world and all the people in the world, right? Help all the missionaries at all times with all the stuff they do. And in essence, it's a prayer like this. Lord, I, I really haven't taken the time to get to know anybody in my church, so I'm just going to randomly and vaguely ask you to bless everyone. You look at Paul in Philippians, he knew the people. He mentions in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Euodia and Syntyche and Clement. In chapter 2, he mentions Epaphroditus. We've already seen in Acts 16 his interaction with Lydia. The jailer guy, right? We don't know his name, he was, but he was more, than, more to Paul than just the jailer guy. The demon-possessed girl, I bet Paul knew her name. Not recorded for us, but I'm, I guarantee Paul knew her name. He says, I'm praying for you personally. I know your request. I know what you need. I know what you're going through, and I'm praying for you personally. And I want to make a point with this, and, and stay with me here. Here's the question, and I want to make a point from this. How fervently do we pray for the Facebook prayer chain requests that come across our feed, or something like that? Probably not very well, right? Why? Because... We, we generally dismiss what is not connected to us. And my point is not to excuse or, or uh, condemn that, but here's my point. We dismiss those types of requests because we, are not, we don't know the people. But if that is the same reason that you cannot pray for the person sitting two rows in front of you every Sunday in church, then shame on us. If we are dismissing the request and dismissing the people with whom we are rubbing shoulders with every Sunday, that if you look at the back of someone's head every Sunday in church, but you don't know what to pray about for them, something's wrong with our fellowship. Something's wrong with our connection. Paul got to know the people in Philippians, even from a long distance. And we have the benefit of seeing the same people every Sunday. Paul's prayer is personal, and personal prayers take personal interaction. That's an encouragement to us to be proactive in connecting with people so that we can take each other with us to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I want you to take that away from this message, if nothing else. When you pray, take someone with you to the throne of grace. We are to pray for one another. Take someone you know and you say, I know this person, I love this person, and I want them to, to have the joy and the peace and the goodness of God in their life that I'm experiencing. I want to take them with me to the throne of grace. You got to get to know that person. You got to know their needs. Make prayer personal. So a pattern of prayer, 
a personal prayer, and then number three here, a powerful prayer. This prayer that Paul prays is powerful. You say, well, what what is it that makes it powerful? Well, look what he prays for. Verse 9, that your love may abound more and more. Verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent, be sincere, and be without offense. He prays for their integrity. And in verse 11, it says he prays that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. He prays for their fruit. He prays for love. He prays for integrity. He prays for fruit. Notice he does not pray for God to bless them with new cars, job promotions, and and relief from sinus pressure. He prays for them for things that matter much, much more than that. It's not that those things don't matter, but he's saying this is the priority of my prayer. These spiritual requests of love, integrity, and fruit is the priority and pattern of my prayer. 1 John 5, 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What's the key phrase in that? Anything according to his will, he hears us. You say, well, well, what prayers then do we know are according to his will? We know what is according to his will. We know the prayers that are according to his will because he's revealed to us his will in Scripture. So when we pray according to the will revealed to us in Scripture, we know that God wants to answer those prayers in us. And when Paul comes here, he prays for three things for the Philippians that he knows are in line with God's will. Love, integrity, and fruit. And I want to take this passage, 9, 10, and 11, and, and encourage us to do the same things. To pray for each other, for things that matter so much. For love, for integrity, and for fruit. So verse 9, why was, his, why was his prayer a powerful prayer? Well, number one, he prayed for love. He prayed for love. Let's read verse 9. He says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now there's something here we have to point out. He says that your love may abound. What kind of love does he want to abound? Does it tell us in the verse? Is it, is it love for God? Is it love for fellow believers? Is it, is it love for a lost world? Is it love for all people? The answer is yes. It's all of those. See, there is no object here because Paul is praying that a sacrificial attitude of love would be in us regardless of who the object is. So whether you're loving God or loving your fellow brother or sister in Christ or loving a lost person and trying to win them to Christ, he says, I want that attitude of love, that sacrifice of love to grow in you no matter who the object is. See, we need love for God because of his love and faithfulness to us. We need love for others because each person that we come in contact with is made in the image of God and is worthy of our respect and fair treatment. Pray for each other, as Paul did, that we would love as Christ loved. Love one another as I have loved you. Pray also for this. Pray that our love for one another would have no limit. Do you see what Paul wants to happen here? And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. Paul says that he wants their love to abound even more and more. Now, Paul has experienced the Philippian church's love to him. We keep talking about that gift that they had sent him and what they had done for Paul and for other believers. He knew that they loved, but this is what he wanted. He says, take it to the next level. You can love even more. Don't stop there. Abound even more and more 
in love. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12 says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Abound in love. Don't settle. Don't settle for just enough. Love as much as you possibly can. That's what Paul's praying for them. Now notice this, the end of the verse, because this is very important in our world today. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. The word there for judgment could be discernment. That in knowledge and in all discernment is how your love would be displayed. So he's praying that their abundance of love would have no limit. But he's also praying that their expression of love would come under the direction of knowledge and discernment. So what does that mean? Check this. This is so important because love is not just a sentimental feeling, right? A sentimental feeling that does whatever it wants to do as if love is some, some boulder careening down a hill out of control. I can't control it. That's what the world wants us to think about love. That's what the world wants us to look at love. And we've heard people say things like this, right? Well, I fell in love and I just couldn't control it. Or maybe even worse, something like, well, well, love is what led me into a homosexual relationship. Or, well, I didn't really want this affair, but that's where love took me. That's the world's love. That's not the love here that, God, that is portrayed in Scripture. The world tells us we'll just go wherever love takes you as if our sinful hearts are the masters of the universe. And we can just do whatever we want to. Scripture tells us something different. We talked about this last uh, Wednesday night in our, in our adult Bible study group, Proverbs 4.23, where it says, keep your heart with all diligence. And that's what it's talking about here, that we are, to, we are to guide our heart with the truth of Scripture, submitting to the Holy Spirit, fellowshipping with the saints, that knowledge of God and discernment in life guards and directs our love. Here's the difference. Love is not a careening boulder out of control, you know, racing down a hillside. Now, this analogy might sound a little strange, but love is more like a bowling ball. You ever gone bowling? What do you do with your bowling ball? You aim it carefully at your target. And if you're not very good, you put up bumpers to keep it out of the gutter, right? So look at love this way. Love is more like a bowling ball in which we are to aim it carefully at our target. And knowledge and discernment are the bumpers that keep us out of the gutters. Does that make sense? It's not just out of control doing whatever it wants to. He says, may your love abound and may it be directed by knowledge and discernment. As our knowledge of God grows, we find more ways to love him and more ways in turn to love each other who are made in the image of God. And Paul says, I'm praying this for you and my challenge to us today is pray Pray for love guided by knowledge and discernment to abound in our lives even more. We need that. Verse 10. Pray for integrity. He says, I'm praying for you that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Pray for integrity in each other's lives. What does that phrase there mean, the first phrase, that you may approve things that are excellent? Pray for excellence. It means this. We are to study, investigate, and determine the best possible ways to obey and please the Lord and then live accordingly. And this quoted from a commentary that I read. It, meant that, it means that we are to study, investigate, and determine the best possible ways to, please, to obey and please the Lord and then live accordingly. 
So when he says, I want you to approve things that are excellent, in essence, he's saying, I want them to stop and think, what is the best thing that I can do to please the Lord in this situation? What is the right priority in any given situation? Pray that we as Christians would pursue godliness with purpose and with intentionality. We need that. That we would thrive in what is excellent instead of just settling for what's mediocre. Ever done that in life? Well, it's good enough. Or, or, or this great phrase when you present something you've worked on and somebody says, it's not bad. As if that's the goal I was shooting for, right? Not bad. I remember growing up, I, I learned a great way to uh, get out of jobs growing up because the way my parents operated, if you were good at something, you got that job. It's like, oh, they can do a good job. And if you were really bad at it, sometimes you got it as a punishment. But if you were mediocre, you slid right through, right? Nobody notices mediocre, and that's true in our world today. We notice really good or we notice really bad. But if you're mediocre, you just kind of slide right through, don't you? Young people, teenagers, don't take my advice in that regard. You do well in everything you do, all right? But it's true. Sometimes we settle for, eh, good enough. He says, approve things that are excellent. Pray that we in our lives would seize the day instead of just surviving the day. You ever feel like that? Oh, I just barely survived, just barely made it. Seize the day that God's given us. Every day above ground is a good day. Take advantage of it. Pray that we would not just be followers of Christ, but pray that we would be excellent followers of Christ. There's a verse in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, and I have this on a, on a plaque in my office. And it says this, I love this verse, and it's an encouragement to me. It says, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. It doesn't say seek that you, yeah, you're good enough. Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church, that everything we do as, in, as, as believers in the church and as, as the church corporately would be excellent. Philippians 3.14, later on in, in, the, in the same book here, we'll get, we'll get to this verse eventually. He says this, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, saying that's the goal I want to attain. That's where I want to get. Go for it. Go for excellence. Did you watch the Olympics here this last year, right? And everybody's going for the gold. We as Christians should be no different. Go for excellence. Approve what is excellent. Do the best that you can possibly do in any given situation for the glory of God. Then look at the second part of verse 10. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So we're praying for excellence in each other's lives. We're also praying for sincerity and blamelessness. That's what that word without offense means, to be without blame. Now, the word sincere here means to be tested in the sun. And in that day, dishonest potters would, would craft a, a piece of pottery, and sometimes it would have a crack in it, or if it didn't quite go well, it might, it might have a, a mar in some way. And they would take wax and they would seal it and then paint over it to cover it up. But if you were a wise customer, you would take that piece of pottery and you would hold it up to the sun. Because when you hold it up to the sun, you can see where that crack is. It's a little different. It looks different. Something's different here. That's what he's praying for us, that when our lives are held up to the sun, when we are tested in life, that we would come through with sincerity and genuineness in the faith that we would keep the faith, that we would earnestly contend for the faith, as Jude 3 says. If you read through the Gospels, you notice something about Christ. 
His harshest rebukes were against the phonies, the hypocrites. He came down hard on them. He had love for everyone else, but with the hypocrites, he told them just like it was. The same for us. Pray that we would be real. Pray that we as believers, pray for each other. Everybody sitting in this room today, for those that can't be here, pray that we would be real. Pray that we would not bring blame on ourselves or cause others to, to stumble or not bring blame on themselves either. Pray for integrity. And then look at the very end of verse 10. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Pray for faithfulness. How long are we supposed to be people of integrity? How long are we supposed to abound in love? How long are we supposed to be filled with fruits of righteousness till the day of Jesus Christ? Pray for faithfulness in each other. Pray that we would stand the test of time, that we would not give in we have to live in this wicked world and be a light in it, but we don't have to give in to it. Pray that we would be faithful until Christ returns, that when Christ returns, he would find us ready to meet him. Pray for faithfulness. Then let's go to verse 11. There's so much in this prayer and, and so much that we can pray for. Pray for love, verse 9. Pray for integrity, verse 10. Pray for fruit, verse 11. Pray for fruit. And I want to show you this. Twice already we've seen this superlative idea of praying for us to be top shelf Christians. Praying to be the best you can be. Verse 9, it was abound even more and more in love. Verse 10 was, was uh, pray that we would be excellent. Approve things that are excellent. And here we see it again. This superlative idea. Notice what he says. He said, pray that I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That word filled. He doesn't just say, I'm praying that you would have some. He's praying that you would overflow with fruit. That you would overflow with the fruits of righteousness. An abundance of fruit. You say, well, what are the, what are the fruits of righteousness? What are the fruits of righteousness here? Well, you know, Galatians 5, and 23, it says, it calls them the fruits of the Spirit. You know what those are? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Is that the fruits of righteousness? Absolutely. Romans 1.13 says that there's, there's the fruit of lost souls, one to Christ. Romans 6.22 says that the fruits of holiness. Colossians 1.10 says that we would be fruitful in every good work. That's something to pray for. Hebrews 13, 15 says that the fruit of our lips would give praise to God. All those things. These are the things that true believers will produce. And Paul's praying for the Philippians here that they would be filled with this fruit, the fruits of righteousness. Not just half full, but filled with fruit. Now notice the, the source of the fruit. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. All things through Christ. It's not your own efforts. It's not your own goodness that produces the fruits of righteousness. It is Christ working in and through us. Remember what Isaiah says when we try to produce our own righteousness? It is all as what? Filthy rags. But he says, this righteousness, this fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. It's by him. It is the work of Christ within you. John 15, verses 4 and 5, and verse number 8, it says this, Abide, this is Jesus speaking, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Catch this, there is no fruit if you are not connected to Christ. There is no fruit if you are not, you are not connected to Christ. And may I say very clearly, you are not connected to Christ unless you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And by belief in that, you are connected to Christ. And then for all of us that do believe that, there is to be abundant fruit. Why? Because the fruit proves that we are connected to Christ. Notice the results here. The source of the fruit is by Jesus Christ. Look at the result of the fruit, verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. We've got to keep this in mind because sometimes we we like to display our fruit, don't we? Look what I've done. Look at my fruit. It's beautiful. It's clean. It's, it's, It's shining in the sunlight. Look what I've done. He says, no, it's not for your own glory. It's not, the fruit is not to be produced for your own glory. He says it's under the glory and praise of God. God forbid, Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory goes to him. All glory be to Christ. So I encourage you, pray for one another that we would submit to the work of Christ in our life and that we would bear much fruit for the glory of God. That's what Paul's praying for the Philippians. And it's a pattern for us. It's a personal prayer. It's a powerful prayer. And I think it's one that we should adopt. And we should pray for each other. Now notice this, because we talked about a lot of important Christian principles. But the encouragement in the message today is not to rush out and get busy doing all these spiritual things. Here's the encouragement. The challenge for us today is this, stop, take a few minutes and pray that God would turn these requests into realities in people's lives. That's the challenge. Stop, take a minute or two every day and say, God, take these requests, take what what you've given us here in this pattern of prayer, this pattern of spiritual prayer and make it a reality in my life and make it a reality in someone else's life. And I can say this from the bottom of my heart truly, that no matter what condition I'm in, whether I'm on death's doorstep or not, if you were to pray these prayers for me, verses 9, 10, and 11, I would be greatly blessed. Whether I'm in the most perfect health or whether I'm about to pass away, if you pray this for me, God will be glorified. I mean that. I want to leave us today, closing out a a little bit differently, leave us with an example of Paul's pattern of prayer for us. And there's another great example of it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. He says to the church of Ephesus, this is what I'm praying for you. And so it's up on the screen for us, and I want us to read this together, but not read it, to pray it together. And this will be our closing prayer today. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, would you read it together with me? But don't just read it, pray it. Together, we bow 
to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.